This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hansen. Welcome back. Glad to have you with us for week two of who knows how many on our podcast. I'm joined with Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. Good to have you guys back on our podcast, which is called Life and Books and Everything. We're going to talk about one of those three things or all. <laughs> you're That's so right, good so. with with uh, names. I mean, you're you're finally paying me back after I named your your book. <laughs> it's true, it's true. No, I've been I've been trying to find an excuse to use this title uh, from Act Seventeen, which I've loved, and uh, uh, so we're just subbing out breath for books because I think that's accurate of things we love and things we like to talk about. But uh, finally, found an excuse with you guys. Well, thanks. I think it works. We are going to talk about some coronavirus stuff and some book stuff. But before we get there, I'm wondering, uh, all of us are like sports. I was going to say into sports, but that could give the illusion that we are great athletes. Uh, as Justin put on Facebook, we we have faces for podcasts. We also <laughs> have uh, athletic prowess for it as well. Let's be realistic though here, Kevin. Only one of us is doing triathlons. Well, I didn't want to go not, there, but I have been not Justin and me. <laughs> I have been running often in this quarantine. What else am I going to do? But sports. So, uh, have you guys been watching The Last Dance, the Jordan documentary? And here here's my little 30-second rant on that. Everybody's a Jordan fan. I'm a real Bulls fan. I was born in Chicago. I rooted for, I grew up in Michigan. I hated the bad boys. I had to suffer through lots of ignominious defeats. And when they finally broke through and won, I still have it somewhere in, in the attic. I had a brilliant shirt, like only a junior high school student would wear that said, had the Bulls logo and it said, how do you like us now? <laughs> and it was epic as I wore that to band class <laughs> in middle school carrying my French horn. Don't mess with me. <laughs> did so you, are you guys play real? French horn, Kevin? Uh, yes, I did. I played the French okay. horn. Okay. Trombone yeah. for me, Justin? I'm thinking uh, of percussion. <laughs> oh, you guys can guess which one. A big, uh, no, a trom- big... no you, trombone, baritone, something low, low brass. If it were percussion, it'd have to be bass, drum, or timpani. One of the two. All wrong. The tuba. Well, Wait, yeah. Well, we were, we were that was in... just assumed. It was fifth yeah. grade and... It, it was normally designed so that you would have one at home for practice and one at school, but they only had one. So I had to carry from Lincoln Elementary School back home to my house a, a very large tuba, which even it's not that heavy, but it's very awkward to carry down the street. So, and it sounds absolutely horrible as a fifth grader <laughs> playing it solo in your room. I'm <laughs> sure it does. It, <laughs> it, 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 you didn't even have veggie tails to sort of boom, boom, boom. You know, uh, my brother's never going to listen to this, so I can tell the story. He played the trombone, and he had a one of those cool sort of like not quite a varsity jacket, but like a a school windbreaker sort of, and it had his name, and then it had marching band on the back, and on the front it had his his instrument. So it said Peter, and right underneath it said trombone. So. <laughs> All through high school, he was Peter Trombone, and that's that's what you're looking for to make it through high school. Back to the Bulls. Okay, the Bulls. Why do people? 
what what's it with Jordan? I mean, this was the highest the the highest rated documentary. Now, okay, we understand the times. There's no sports on, and I mean, my son is telling me, "Hey, Dad, look, the women's handball championship is on from last year." Hey, the Berlin Marathon from 28, that really happened. The Berlin Marathon from 2018, should I hit record? Of course you should. Okay, so the competition's down. But what is it about Jordan, and are you guys legit Jordan fans? I am. Yeah, I'm with Kevin. And uh, You really, you rooted for him growing up? Absolutely. Watched every game that I could. He's just such a transcendent figure. Um, what what I think is really interesting watching the footage now is that he seems no less transcendent going back 30 years in time. Um, maybe it's not 30 years, but uh, it seems like most figures that you watch the old reels and they just seem like they diminish over time. Like, oh, that guy playing today, he would just get totally smoked. Um, you go back and you look at Jordan, and I, I'm kind of glad for a new generation to see this in um, in full and in context, because it's one thing to see some great dunk from him or some great fadeaway shot, but to see him actually in the context of the games and in the context of 90s basketball, um, I think somebody who's just seen like some dunk footage from him and then compare him to LeBron or others whom you get to see in context in, in the context of a full game and with his competition. Uh, Jordan has aged pretty well, I think, in terms of the footage. And he didn't have the he didn't really have the superstars with him. I mean, Rodman and Pippen were great players, but they're all kind of from like mid America colleges and they weren't superstars apart from him. So it was almost like this this misfit uh, crew that gets assembled and Tony Ku coach. Hello. Right. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say you were saying Jordan aged well, but I said, but not as well as his mother apparently what? has oh, aged. Yes. I, I looked it up. Is that legit? Astounding. Was that footage taken twenty years ago? I have no idea. I mean, obviously of his dad with the tragic end right. there, but I I had the same thoughts. Like, wow, that's amazing. I'm not a not a Jordan. Well, I'm not a Bulls fan, but I will say I am a Birmingham Barons fan. So that makes me a Jordan fan. Uh, in that sense. Uh, no, I was a Penny Hardaway, Shaquille O'Neal fan. So Nick Anderson broke my heart now while Jordan was down here in Birmingham playing baseball. But I mean, I think uh, we're in a period of quarantine, you know, stay at home or whatever, where we're seeking some sort of comfort. And it, I mean, Brett McCracken, who does arts and culture for us at TGC, had talked about how he's listening to a bunch of 90s music right now and he's about our age a little bit younger and i had noticed huh i've been listening to the wallflowers lately like why am i listening to jacob dylan all of a sudden why am i reaching back to hoodie and the blowfish that was oh, the I first think. first band that I, I knew of those three you just mentioned there, <laughs> there you go so well a lot of people don't remember the wallflowers but they were great uh short-lived but i'm um, just reaching back to something that's familiar uh something that uh, that that brings positive endorphins, and I think that's probably something to do, at least that documentary. But I remember seeing our friend Matt Smethurst say right away, early on in the lockdown, ESPN, bring this documentary up, you know, rush it to, and America, America cried out for it, and ESPN delivered, and um, and we're all benefiting from it, and it gives us something to look forward to. I mean, we're we're coming off the draft, and. I just, I was 
I was texting or, you know, talking with a friend last night, late into the night about the draft. And I realized this was like a little oasis of normalcy mm-hmm. of what my life used to be like. Um, and hopefully will be again, but I don't know when. That's how it felt to me, at least. You, you just felt something was normal again when they booed Roger Goodell. <laughs> that was fun. I did appreciate the way he at least owns it. That's the country fun. is united yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Uh, staying with sports for a minute, how, how do you guys assess, and I guess it could go uh, either way, but with everything shut down, I've heard some people say, this really shows the Lord is stripping away our our idolatry and how many of us just were living for sports. You know, I saw one person tweet at one point, apparently the only things I ever did for fun were go to restaurants, shop, and touch my face. And uh, I can't do any of those. So there's one sort of, this shows how much of an idolatry uh, we've made of sports that we're all, you know, I, I put me, missing it so much. And it provides for a lot of us the rhythm of what I have to look forward to this weekend and what's coming up and the seasons are marked by sports. So I, I'll let you weigh in if, if you want to go the idolatry route. But I just push back a, a little bit. And and I, I understand I'm saying this because I am a sports fan, and so I can't claim to be unbiased. But I, I see it as a lot of common grace good. And, of course, there's idolatry, huge amounts of it. You know, we see that every time we, especially if you live in the South and you come to college football season. But I think the it, it's something that people can relatively peacefully come together, can watch, can root for can cheer about. And I think sometimes we can hyper-spiritualize the idolatry, spiritual adultery kind of conversation so that we're not allowed to have anything that we like. Uh, Just just one anecdote here, and then I'll let you guys chime in. But you may have heard this line from Piper, which I think is a very good line. I've used it in my sermons a number of times, and it, it really is a powerful point. He will say, and I've used it. Uh, if you could be in heaven with all the chocolate you want, all the food, none of the pounds, you know, sex, sports, everything, and Jesus isn't there, do you still want to be there? Now, and, I, and I've talked to John about this. I think it's a great question to really help people see, hmm, why am I into Jesus? And at the same time, I want to say, when the Bible talks about all the covenant blessings, they, they don't imagine them, and I know this is not what Piper was imagining either, but they don't imagine them as in some hermetically sealed space, you and God sitting there. I mean, it's you have your own vine and your own fig tree, and there's no more tears, and there's a lush garden that God describes his covenant blessings in terms that we can understand of material material prosperity now not in the here and now but in the life to come and so i just i want to make sure that we're not de facto buddhists who act like the the way to really have peace in this world is to do away with cravings do away with desires when jesus seems to say yeah i I can give those to you even better so um disagree with me or give the other side. How do you think of this? Is this showing us our our idols or just taking away gifts that we should have been more thankful for? 
You go first, Justin, to also disagree with Piper. Go. <laughs> Not disagreeing, no, just no, saying okay. that whenever I use that line, I use it, and people in the congregation, I can tell they're, oh, I mean, that hits them, and it should. And then I'm quick to say, and yet, uh, blah, 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 I give a little caveat, and I've talked to John about that, and I don't think he disagrees. Yeah, and it's one thing to uh, agree or disagree sort of in theory, and then it's another thing kind of uh, as in practice and in uh, in reality as, uh, as you kind of watch your own heart and life mm. and time and that sort of thing. So I, I think I agree, Kevin, with everything that you're saying there. Um, I think we'd all agree, like, it, it certainly can be an idolatry, and not just theoretically, but for many people it is uh, – almost by definition, idolatry. I mean, when your uh, emotions and, and sense of spiritual being are so tied up with the performance of uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old athletes, and uh, you find incredible amounts of anger at somebody who's made a decision at, on fourth and one that you would disagree with, um, it, it really can easily become imbalanced. And yet, I think, along the lines of what you were saying, if you go to the other extreme and just say godliness is uh, refraining from any form of communal activity that is not Jesus-centered, I think there's a way that we can bring and should bring uh, a a Jesus-shaped piety towards watching sports. But Kevin, you and I have only been to, uh, I think, two professional games together. One uh, White Sox-Cubs game, if I remember correctly, and one a Nebraska-Michigan game. And uh, we were both on opposite sides there, but it was a thrilling Nebraska comeback. um, And we had left the game early and watched it. They didn't win. Michigan State won, but they almost came back like three touchdowns in the fourth quarter and, and could have tied the game. Uh, I was really sad that night going to bed (laughs) at your house, but I think it's the sort of thing, like if that had lingered on, like the next day, I'm just kind of, I can't get out of a funk because Nebraska lost that game and it lingers on. I just think we need to be asking ourselves that question of regularly, is this getting out of proportion? Are my affections, uh, in proportion to such a way that that I get so excited and energized by college football that I never really do about corporate worship or about reading my Bible and about praying and, and the things of the Lord. So I, I agree it's kind of a both and. I think it's very easy to go off on let, letting the pendulum swing too far to either direction. Um I do think there's a danger in saying, yeah, it's a both and, and therefore I'm never going to ask myself any hard questions about whether I I might be falling into idolatry. I hope my kids grow up loving sports. I hope they love playing sports. That's one angle that we haven't quite looked at here of the idolatry of pursuing that athletic glory yourself. And um, I just was never good enough to be able to have to worry about that terribly much. God was kind in that uh, in that regard. But I hope my kids grow up and love sports, in part because, Kevin, it's one of those common graces. I've, I've noticed that it's almost just like there's something missing now that I would love to be sharing with my son. would love to be, I was supposed to be his coach for his little league team, uh, which of course didn't happen. 
um, would be loving watching Royals games with him right now and haven't been able to do that. And it makes me sad, more sad than it makes him. He's five, so it's not that big of a, of a deal. But I hope we are able to share that in the future. And I don't generally cheer for the same teams as my own dad because uh, I, for some reason, decided I wanted to rebel in that way. And it's a lot less fun. That way, I wish my dad and I were always cheering for the same teams and could share that in common. Same with my uncles and all Does the people cheer that I grew for, up like with. the South Dakota Warriors or the, <laughs> the well, Mitchell we, we are both, Palace. Of course, of course, we are both South Dakota State Jackrabbits fans of and course. also Northwestern Wildcats fans. But the key distinction is he's a big Minnesota Twins fan. And of course, I went otherwise to the Royals and also the Vikings and basically the Minnesota teams there. But uh, so I would, so I hope. I hope they care about sports, but I hope they care a little less than I do or did at one point. Um, I think I owe Iowa quarterback Ricky Stanzi an apology. So, if Ricky, <laughs> you're out there listening now. I said some pretty bad things about you um, while watching Northwestern defeat you when you were undefeated. And, um, yeah, I just I've got some regrets related to some things that I've thought and I've felt and also have said about that, which I think are in keeping with um, sort of the, the fruit of idolatry there as well. And I know, Kevin, you were gloating at the time, but I've never seen such a wide-scale repentance of idolatry than living on the, sh- the north side of Chicago in 2003. That was pretty remarkable there. Bartman uh, brought a lot of people, uh, <laughs> and the rest of the Cubs brought a lot of repentance to a lot of Christian friends of mine then who had a lot of hopes invested in the Cubs. And of course, you know, when you lose that painfully, it's pretty brutal. But yeah, uh, yeah so I hope um, it's a good thing, but it clearly goes wrong for me personally. Well, I hope that we can go back to sports from time to time because uh, I think it's really important. It's it's something that most, well, I'll say a whole lot of Americans, a whole lot of people around the world care about, and there's a way to care about it in a way that honors God and a way that dishonors him. And so I, I appreciate you guys challenging me on that and being willing to talk about it. But let's talk a little bit about coronavirus. Okay, there was an article, it wasn't widely read and it wasn't a major piece, but in a leading evangelical periodical and website, and it had something like the title, you know, is coronavirus God's judgment? And it was just a short piece, but the answer was clearly, no, this is not God's judgment. And I think that's certainly a defensible position, but here's where I want to dabble in perhaps danger just a bit. I don't know if this is God's judgment upon the world, Uh, I certainly would not say pastorally, you got coronavirus, it's a judgment upon you. But that's not how God's people understood judgments. They understood them often groups and nations. So I understand the pastoral dilemma, but I think we are too quick to pass by this category that God might be judging us in some way. And uh, we've talked outside of this podcast about the book God's Judgments by Stephen Keeler. Did you say this is Garrison Keeler's brother? It is, yep. I did not know that. I mean, it makes sense. PhD, University of Minnesota. God's Judgments, Interpreting History in the Christian Faith. It's, uh, 
it's a serious book. It's an academic book by a trained historian, and Mark Knoll writes the foreword, and Mark Knoll basically says, eh, you haven't quite convinced me, but you've sure given me a lot to think about. And all of us have been trained as in kind of academic historiography in different ways. And so we know that this is off limits. You can't do generally respectable history and say the the cause here is God. You, you can understand that as a Christian, but you sort of bracket that. And, and that's another discussion is that wise. I think it, it can be appropriate to do that. But Keeler is arguing no, uh, we see in the new in the Old Testament and the New Testament that God judges nations. And while I agree with his basic argument that we shouldn't be quick to dismiss current events as God's judgment, the problem always is, and I, I find the same thing in his book, when he gets to it, you think, well, I'm not so sure that's convincing. So he has what specific judgment 9-11 was, and throughout history, the burning of the, the White House by the British, what judgment that was. And then you have to scratch your head and say, mm, I think you could probably make six or seven arguments. So I don't, I would not want to claim I know why God might be judging us. But I would say this from church history, it is, it is absolutely the case that if we were back two centuries, maybe even a century and a half, certainly longer than that. We would be having many, many leading pastors and preachers preaching sermons about how this plague is God's judgment. Just to give you one example, all roads lead to John Witherspoon. This is from a fast day sermon in Scotland in 1758. Part of the context is the Seven Years' War, known as the French and Indian War in North America. But it really was, uh, in some ways, the first world war. I mean, it involved all of these major powers in Europe, and I won't read all this, but he says, coming to the end of his sermon and applying these different scripture passages, he says, we have of late suffered under a variety of public strokes. We have not only had for some time past repeated threatenings of scarcity and dearth, but vast multitudes have been afflicted with famine, which is one of God's sore judgments. Uh, has this not been the providence of God sensibly frowning upon us? And we have visibly frustrated, uh, or he has frustrated almost every one of our attempts. We have turned our backs faint-hearted before our enemies in almost every encounter. The greater and more formidable our preparations for enterprise, the more pitiful the issue, the more shameful our defeat and disappointment. He has obstructed our trade. We have loss of territory, loss of honor, expense of treasure, and on and on he goes for pages. Clearly, and, and this would not have been controversial, He's saying the reason we're losing this war, the reason we have famine, the reason we're hungry, God's judging us and we're not listening. We're not really repenting. So why is it that we seem, and I have ambivalence here, I admit, but why is it that this seems to be a category for almost no one as we reflect on the current predicament? Yeah, I think you're totally right in terms of the mainstream historical guild and not just talking about uh, the secular historians, but Christian mainstream historians. The Overton window, you know, the, the range of acceptable options that can be proposed has so narrowed that it's almost not even possible for debate. Uh, Keeler 
is one of the few who's written on it, and he is not, he doesn't have a major teaching post, um, isn't doing a ton of publishing, even with mainstream presses. So, um, yeah, it is a very minority view. D David Bevington, um, I don't recall if he's actually talked about God's judgments per se, but in terms of providentialism, which is the broader category that you're talking about, you know, can we say, leave aside God's judgment, can we say that God did this or that God is sovereign over this or that uh, he was the cause of this? Even Christian historians seem to want to focus almost entirely on secondary causation. Um, so I do think it's problematic uh, that it's not even sort of up for debate and is oftentimes in books on the topic dismissed in a paragraph or two. And I think some of the dismissals have have legitimate uh, points or there's legitimate arguments to consider. You know, Carl Truman says that if I ask you why the, the planes hit the twin towers and you say God's providence, you may have said something theologically true, but you're not actually telling me much. Uh, it's like saying that the towers fell because of gravity. Um, interesting point, legitimate point, but historians tend to be more caught up in, in secondary causations and something that can be analyzed and debated. So I think that I'm with you, Kevin, in it seems incontrovertible to me that God would still issue judgments, and yet our confidence or certainty about specifics in terms of what God is is actually doing through it or why he has done it uh, become a little murkier. I suppose one uh, biblical parallel would be that we, we have biblical judgments in redemptive history, and then we have God authoritatively interpreting those judgments. Uh, we don't have him authoritatively interpreting every natural phenomenon that that took place outside of the redemptive historical storyline. So if there is some earthquake in Asia in 1000 BC, you know, is that a judgment from God? Uh, we don't have his authoritative interpretation of what he was doing, why he was doing it. But I do think we have basic biblical principles of uh, Jesus saying, hey, that tower fell over there. Uh, let's not analyze why it fell. Let's analyze what your response is to this phenomenon. And it's always a call to repentance. It's always a call to return to Christ. It's always a call to examine our sin. Um, and it's always a call to walk in integrity and walk in the light. And um, So, yes, I agree with everything I think you're saying. And it's a really interesting discussion, I'm sure. And one it. of the things, historically, I think you see in these pronouncements from an earlier century is they they tend to focus on repenting of the church's sins now to be fair you know scotland was a, a christian nation and so repenting of the nation repenting of the church is the same thing but where we see mischief uh intentional or not in our own day is saying okay this is god's judgment and it's it's conveniently a judgment on none of the things i do none of the people i'm with but it happens to be a judgment against all the things that I already had been speaking against. And it's that famous C.S. Lewis essay, The Danger of National Repentance, where you are, are claiming to repent, but you're actually repenting of the sins of a whole lot of other people. You're not including yourself in it. And I think they did more of a, a mea culpa in some of these traditional 
fast sermons to say, we have not called upon the Lord. We have neglected prayer. We have neglected the things of God rather than just pointing the fingers at a different class of people or different type of people doing sins that we're not doing. Colin, you read history as much or more than either of us. Uh, How do you make sense of this? I'm working on a book right now, and actually we were talking this morning uh, with my co-author about it, and we were trying to work Who's your co-author, Colin? Sarah Ekoff-Zalstra, who works with us at uh, at TGC and has been working with me all the way back to uh, 2004 at uh, Christianity Today. What a great Dutch name. um, It is. Well, she's a great uh, Dutch woman. Strong. (laughs) She's uh, she's, uh, thoroughly, thoroughly Dutch. and uh, one of the one of the questions that we were talking about today is we went we went back to nine eleven, and do you guys remember what the Western interpretation was of why the towers were attacked on nine eleven? Why what, do what, they what, hate us? Yeah, why do they hate us? What What do you guys remember from that? Well, I feel like Professor Hansen is really putting us on the spot. <laughs> well, I just want to make sure. I mean, I have my own interpretation, but I'm interested to know what you guys think of when you. I remember reading lots on that, and mm-hmm. you'd get responses from the right and the left. Though that question, why they hate us, tended to be more of a question asked on the left, mm-hmm. and it would often be accompanied with no small amount of mm, American self-recriminations. Well, they hate us because of our debauchery that might be more on the right they they hate us because we haven't treated immigrants well or we they hate us because of our anti-muslim rhetoric they hate us because we're warmongers yeah uh, and then others maybe more on the right are they hate us because we've been successful because of our freedoms because of our wealth uh again i think they tended to be conveniently they hate us for things that I already dislike in other people. Yeah, that's my point. Uh, Justin, anything to add to that from your interpretation of that? No, other than the, the um, Jerry Falwell comments that you know he went yeah. on Pat Robertson, and it's all because of uh, the gays, and right. that's, that's why this happened. Right. Well, you guys remember what are the replacements? What, what's the replacement for the Twin Towers called? The Freedom Tower, right? So it seems that from what I can recall, what I remember, the kind of dominant view, and it wasn't the only view, but the dominant view was they hate us because they hate our freedoms. They attacked our freedoms. They they hate that. Um, and George W. Bush was very explicit in building exactly. So 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 probably more than anybody else, President Bush was responsible, and nobody else had a similar kind of platform to be able to shape that response. Okay. What evidence do we have that that was ever true? I, I could just be missing something, but it was almost like that was just assumed. So, Kevin, to your point, it seems that the interpretation of events seems to tell us a lot more about ourselves than it does about God. And that's what makes me concerned about it. And that's what makes me fairly wary of making those conclusions. And so I completely agree when it comes to all of the history and uh, there was some discussion recently about this online of somebody saying, hey, why are you talking about God in judgment? Just go to Jesus in the Gospels. It's like, well, you got some major canonical issues there, along with a lot of other things. I mean, it, what do you do? You just take the entire book of Jeremiah and you just toss it out? 
I mean, not just Jeremiah, but everywhere. That that tweet you're thinking of was actually yeah. responding to a right. passage, I think, from First Corinthians that talks about a sickness and judgment, and the the respondent was just go to Jesus who cast out demons, and that's all bad stuff. So it's like, well, what about Paul? That's not just Old Testament versus New Testament, right? No, like I said, there's no end to the problems there, and so uh, the way I kind of come down on it is that I want to use history to bring some accountability to us. And I think that's necessary on this issue. We are at a step with the dominant historical response of Christians for all time. And I think we're at a step with the basic biblical response. Um, So I agree with that, both individually and corporately. Um, I would also say that if we're going to be talking individually or corporately, I don't think we're going to run out anytime soon of perfectly legitimate reasons that God would want to judge us. So I don't have any problems on that front either. Where I have the issue is where Justin talked about the, where is God's authoritative interpretation there? Right. Yeah. Right. So that's the danger and that's my ambivalence. And that's why I appreciated what Stephen Keeler was trying to do. Well, let's turn a corner here. And since this is at least in part a podcast about books, let's talk about books. Uh, Several questions. Here's maybe a fun one to start. And just so our esteemed lister, listeners understand, we do not talk about these subjects beforehand. I have a list that I'm <laughs> keeping now. I have 24 questions on here, and we get to three or four of them each time. But I don't tell Justin or Colin. It's just sort of a fun grab bag for them. I like it that way. Yeah. But here's a, here's a fun question, okay? People might think you guys are talking about books and all these books you read. And yeah, okay, we, we all like to read. But we get to talk about the books that we've read. That's what we're talking about. We don't read everything. So I want to know what are a book or three or ten or authors that you have not read? Now, that's an infinite list almost. What I mean is not, oh, I, I never read Anna Karenina which has got, I haven't read it either, but it's often the answer on it for the Jeopardy question. I mean, in our circles, you're with, you're with our friends, you're with these Christian leaders, and they're throwing out these books, and you nod like, yeah, yeah, I've, I'm with you. And really, you've never, you've never read it. Let, since I knew I was going to ask that, I got a, a couple of suggestions or answers for me. The first, Colin probably knows about and will make him disappointed I tried reading Wendell Berry for, you know, Jaber Crow for, I think, a chapter. I'm not anti-Wendell Berry. I don't think. You made it just, one chapter before giving up? Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Do you it's also not, hate Marilyn Robinson? Is that, that was my second here? one. <laughs> yeah, I knew it. That was my it. second one. I knew it. I knew not, it. Uh, it's because they go together. It's because it's it, there's too many stylistic similarities between yeah, them. Yeah, I don't know. So people talk about it, and I know I feel like I'm not a real thinky person. I haven't read the whole uh, Marilyn Robinson, ouvoir, or however you say that French <laughs> word. And I haven't done the whole... I think Ivan Mason reads Gilead every week. I know. <laughs> so those two come to mind that when people talk about it, I just say, yeah, that's really deep. Oh, man, really? And I just, no, hadn't done anything for me. Are you also, don't read any Russian literature. Is that also true, Kevin? Or <laughs> Yeah, but then I feel like I'm more excused. Okay. Uh, yeah, I just, I haven't read, you know, Billy Budd either or <laughs> Massive... 
American pieces of American literature. Uh, so Justin, little known secret, you actually don't read books. You just publish <laughs> them and blog about them. So easy question for you. Yeah, I'd say probably my top three would be that people would be surprised about um, Knowing God by Packer. What? Uh, Whoa. Piper's Desiring God. Okay, now this is not even legit. (laughs) Okay, okay. We realize what's happened here. Okay. Uh, You know, one that comes to mind is Oliver Oliver O'Donovan's work. Uh, I've actually purchased it. um, You're also good at purchasing books better than reading books. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully my wife does not listen to this podcast ever. (laughs) I don't know if she knows I'm recording this podcast right now. Uh, I think O'Donovan would be one that a lot of people talk about. And you sound intelligent if you have read him. And I have purchased him, but I have not yet made my way through it and and would like to. And I'm a little bit intimidated to, but uh, he'd be one that comes to oh, mind. That, that's, that was like saying that my biggest weakness is that I work too hard. Yeah, that, I know. <laughs> I just I've haven't read made it all except- the way Solzhenitsyn yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just only three-fourths of the way through Gulag Archipelago. <laughs> okay, Colin, give us a better answer. Like, oh, you've man, never read is, the Chronicles of Narnia. This is, uh, you, oh my. Um, That's not right. This, this, is, this is like the game show I always knew that no one would ever invite me to be on, and that I didn't ever want to participate in. So mine's way worse than yours. Kevin, um, I don't read much C.S. Lewis or Charles Spurgeon, and I think it's I think it's because what I said last week. I am a foolish snob, and basically, it's just because here, for here, some re- for some, <laughs> for <laughs> everyone agrees on this. We're all united, not just booing Roger Goodell, but that I'm a foolish snob. Um, I mean, I have read, I've read like parts of Problem of Pain. Um, I have read the Chronicles of Narnia series, but I was in third grade, so... Um, oh, by the way... Read, you mean watch the movies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did read those. Um, oh, man, this is even worse. No Tolkien. Never oh. even cracked a book oh, that um, is of Tolkien's. That is um, so, and same thing, Harry Potter. I mean, that's not, I never read any of it. I have no clue what anybody's talking about on that so um but the main issues there with with lewis and spurgeon i mean i've got my spurgeon volumes um i have read some of lewis's lectures and they are great none of this has anything to do i mean i guess i may be me foolish here but at least uh, and, and a snob but at least i still appreciate what i haven't read unlike you kevin um, and what you <laughs> about Wendell Berry and Marilyn Robinson. By the way, um, my wife is with you on Marilyn Robinson, can't stand it, but loves Wendell Berry. So I'm not sure what the difference is there. Yeah. But um, I, I do think maybe this would be helpful to discuss. I think that fiction takes a long time to get into. And maybe maybe it's always been that way. Maybe it's just that way for me. Maybe it's that way. Uh, I feel like... I have to enter that world. And sometimes if, if, if it's a long novel, thousand pages, 700 pages, it mm-hmm. feels like it takes me 200, 300 pages. We're to still meeting people into it. Yeah. So I, I don't think, I mean, maybe you would still hate it, Kevin, if you kept going. I hate, I didn't say hate. I just, well, <laughs> I usually, a fiction book, I usually say, I'm going to give it 50 pages. Maybe I need to give it more. I just, I just don't think that's the way fiction's written. 
So I'm just not sure it works that way. Um, because with nonfiction, I, and this is going to be a good segue, nonfiction, yeah. you got payoff on the first five pages. Because if, yeah, exactly. if it's a good nonfiction the book, there the thesis you. is there. You got it. Yeah. In fact, a lot of nonfiction books, you can read the introduction and you got the, the main gist enough to talk about it and footnote it in a dissertation uh, where fiction books don't work that way. But it's a great segue because... Uh, none of us are reading fiction like we read nonfiction, nor as we probably, you know, want to, or at least feel like we ought to. But give give me some fiction books that you've really enjoyed, and here's some qualifications. You can't go back into high school. Yeah, you can't say, <laughs> "Oh, The Merchant of Venice was really powerful." When when I was in high school, my honors English class, we had to read 800 pages of free reading in American literature. I was like, well, I don't want to be going to the library and finding all these books. So I just looked for the biggest book I could. That was 800 pages. <laughs> the collect the, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe. It was a dark semester. I read nothing <laughs> but Edgar Allan Poe, which is actually kind of fun. So you can't do that. You can't mention Tolkien. You can't mention Lewis. Uh, you, you can't even do... Andrew Peterson stuff. Okay. So I'm just setting those aside. They don't have to be Christian authors. What, what are some fiction books in the last 10 years, even that you've read that you benefited from either just for enjoyment or uh, more aesthetic reasons? Crickets. Just, you want to go first? I knew I was going to ask. I can go first. I just always go first. Okay, I'll jump in. Go Justin, ahead, Kevin. Still go ahead, Kevin. Uh, well, first of all, I've I've read almost all the Jeeves and Wooster. I mean, P.G. Woodhouse is, I mean, he really is brilliant and funny, and uh, you know the the Hugh, what the Laurie Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry did episodes of it. But like everything, the book is just a thousand times better, even though those are clever. So just for escapist literature and the use of the English language, it's sort of set in a high society of England in the earlier part of the 20th century. Just really funny. Um, a book that I had heard about for a long time, then I finally read, and then I started having other people read it, and they said, eh, I didn't really get into that, but was um, The Book of the Duncow by Walter Weingren. You know, it's kind of an animal fable. But I really, I don't know, I don't even have a dog, but the dog is a hero in there and don't want to spoil it for you. But I found that to be a fascinating read. I really enjoyed reading that. Um, I got others rattling through my brain. Justin, Colin, what about you? Fiction books. Just give two or three. Uh, for me, I haven't been reading a lot of fiction in terms of on the page, but have uh, been doing more fiction through Audible. Uh, so John Williams Stoner, somebody mentioned that they thought that was the great American novel. And so I listened to that. Um, and it's about stoners? It is about a man named Stoner who oh. was an English professor okay. uh, early 20th century uh, from a Missouri farm and becomes a professor. And uh, as with, you know, I don't know if you guys feel like this with fiction. There's a lot of times uh, it, it contains things uh, of sexual nature here and there that make it somewhat yeah. 
you know, when you recommend it, you have to do it with a little bit of a caveat. And I don't always remember, you know, if you're talking about going back the last 10 years. Uh, Charles Portis's True Grit, uh, I think that's one that is just a beautiful uh, audio book because it's read in the narrator's voice. Um, Dog of the South by Charles Portis is another one I've recently been doing. And then I, I've picked up some books from that kind of high school English AP English era and return to them like John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, um, The Old Man and the Sea, and to listen to them uh, with different narration has been really uh, fun to do. Uh, a more recent one, I don't tend to like uh, fantasy sort of stuff. Maybe Station Eleven isn't fantasy, kind of post-apocalyptic genre or whatever the right category is, but uh, listen to that and enjoyed it. Colin? Yeah, I feel like um, I'm going to be uh, Justin Taylor going through the Crossway book catalog here. Um, we, we need to. I, I mean, if this if this podcast goes past like four or five episodes, we're going to have to come back to this topic. So, I am unashamedly. I read a lot of fiction, and uh, so and I like it. I'm not always good at reading it, but I read a lot of it, and. Also, I've just learned that with my fiction, though, I have to issue warnings when I talk about it, because unless you want to spend a thousand pages in medieval uh, Scandinavia, maybe don't listen to my recommendations. Kristen Lovett's daughter. Exactly. Exactly. By Unset. So I great. I mean, generally, I've gotten good feedback from other people who liked it. I really appreciated that one. It would be especially a good... um, pandemic read spoiler alert on that one uh the more recent book that i've recommended that um that really enjoyed read it um last year i think or the year before um that uh, ray ortland responded and said he said it was the second greatest novel um so that was his uh that was his view that is the a fortunate man by henrik pont pontopadin it's an early 20th century danish piece there um, and again, it's, it's, it's about all sorts of philosophy and, and interesting things there. But um, I'll give uh, some of the other ones I'll give will be they're more uh, they're just more fun or just a little more accessible. I mean, I know a ton of people who've read All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. That's a great book. I mean, especially I'm a sucker for World War Two stuff. So uh, the the two books um life and fate by vasily grossman and also stalingrad stalingrad came out last year in translation for the first time uh so if you love studying world war ii and just are interested in that time period it's another great one there and then um another one yes like i said this is all fairly recent stuff um or at least definitely within the last 10 years or else the last year or whatever but uh andy crouch is a really big fan of soldier the great war by Mark Helprin. I've read that one as well, and I recommend it strongly. So you're in my wheelhouse here, Kevin. I love this stuff, and I love to make book recommendations on fiction. And um, usually what I do, I mean, I don't read only fiction, but what I try to do is I try to pair one fiction book. Oh, I forgot to mention on there, um, this will be a little bit off um, off the norm, Homegoing by Yag Yassi. And I have to, I have to admit, I don't know how to pronounce her name. So that's not fair, but that is a story of uh, two uh, two African women separated at basically birth, and then there are different narratives within West African slave trade and then also through American slavery. 
And it's just a remarkable book. It is not light um, in terms of the, the the subject matter there. And a lot of things, like you said, uh, Justin, you got to get a content warning on this one for sure. But when it comes to um, just learning about racial dynamics in the United States and history, even though it's a novel, um, I found it to be incredibly helpful. And I'll, I'll give you just this um, this promotion on the book or this this blurb on the book. There's something in this book to confirm pretty much anybody's thesis of what's wrong about race in America. And that's one thing I love about novels is that they're not the best ones are not just trying to advance some sort of base thesis. They are trying to kind of encapsulate experience and they're um, trying to, again, telling a story. And so if you come, no matter what angle you come in on the racial question, you're going to find something in here that's going to confirm your suspicions and you leave it in the end and you think, I'm not exactly sure what this author was trying to accomplish, but you feel like you really understood and, and, and related in a way that you couldn't otherwise. So um, that's my last one there. You know, there's a whole bunch of books in there I hadn't heard of. <laughs> Most I had, maybe one or two I'd read. So you're reading all sorts of things and you read a lot more fiction than I do. Yeah. What, what just off the top of your head, guys, if you had to put into some broad percentages, the books that you read, uh, how would it fall? Like I would, this is completely off the top of my head. Uh, you know, I, I bet five or 10% of what I read is fiction. I bet, uh, you know, 50% is history, even more than the, maybe, and then maybe 30% theology and then whatever's left, some combination of politics, economics. Those are just some big buckets of things I like to read. How do you guys break it down? Counting, they don't have to add up to a hundred. Are we counting pages? Are we doing pages no. here? Or are we just doing uh, like books? Just kind of books. I know fiction okay. books, they take up a lot of pages sometimes. Just what do you, if you looked on your shelf, you know, like I'm anytime maybe reading through five or 10 different books, what are, what are the types of books? Because I teach theology and so I think I should, I would expect to have theology, but then I did, okay, I did my, my doctorate degree in history. And I guess that shows because I am more often having history books and history books that have some, some tie into politics, theology, Christianity, church. I mean, it just makes sense. Those are the things I've, I've always been interested in. Kevin, is there a kind of book that's easier for you to read? Are books that are making arguments are easier okay. for me to read. Now, okay. fiction, I can get, if it's a good fiction book, um, I shouldn't say if it's good because there's lots of good fiction books that are hard to read. But, you know, yeah. I read Orphan X over the Christmas break, which caveats, there's a couple chapters you just skip because egregious sort of sensuality stuff. But that was a spy thriller. I don't usually read that. And I just, I couldn't get away. I was, I was, that's easy to read. But mostly I'm reading nonfiction and books that are making arguments and arguments that I'm, uh, are answering questions that I've had, either making arguments I'm going to agree with or not going to agree with. And that that's true too. Uh, this is another podcast, but and, and you guys are not preachers by trade, but I've talked to other preachers. And for me, when I put together a sermon, the easiest sermons for me to put together are the sermons that are making an argument. Mm. I don't mean argumentative, but they're arguing for 
you know, what Jesus meant in the Olivet Discourse, or they're arguing for why we can trust the resurrect. Those things, the harder ones are when it's a passage everybody knows about, and I have to think of a way to, you know, make it really feel and sink home. And, and I've talked to other pastors who say they're just the opposite, and they love those passages. It's obvious on the face of it, and then they can kind of play with it. I, I like passages that are difficult. And that probably says something about what I like to to read. And and uh, I got another one last book question from that, but I want to make sure you guys can answer. What, what sort of percentages well, the, are you reading? The reason I was asking that, Kevin, is because as I've grown as a reader, um, well, first of all, it's just I'm not the same reader that I was that I at 39 that I was at 29 and certainly not at 19. And some of it is my interests have changed, but also it's because now I've accumulated a lot of knowledge that helps me to be able to read books. And so I have a little bit different perspective now on like how could Don Carson and J.I. Packer have done so many book blurb look book blurbs? Well, in part because they kind of know what's being said. Right. In the books in many cases. And so that, that's just totally changed for me. But the reason I asked, Kevin, is because um, I've, I, there's certain kinds of like philosophically oriented systematic theology is extremely difficult for me. Oh, you I love me, that. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. So like a thousand pages of that would just tax me in extraordinarily difficult ways. A 500-page commentary is very hard for me. It just, and not as hard as reading, you know, some sort of science text or something. Um, but it's just, I've just had to, it's hard to admit, this is kind of like a, a podcast where I talk about all my things that should disqualify me, like not reading uh, Spurgeon and Lewis. But um, I just, I don't know if there's somebody listening that needs to hear that we're not all gifted in the same ways as readers. And um, what I've just noticed about myself is that I am a strongly narratival thinker. Mm. Um, it's as you guys know, it's the way I talk, it's the way I think. And so history works for me. Biblical theology as a discipline works for me. Novels work for me. Turretin um, doesn't work for you? No, does not work for me. Oh. Oddly enough, Edwards is an exception. Edwards is fine. Um, I love Edwards, so I'm not sure where that kind of fits in, but just general percentages, Kevin, um, roughly, I, I try to have four books at a time. So sociology slash public affairs, uh, would be one, about 20, 20%, whatever, 25%. Theology Bible, there's always something there. Then history, which again, that's the, that's the easiest thing for me to be able to, to read. It goes the quickest and then fiction. So that basically rounds out. It's about about in, in quarters there. Justin? Uh, I've been spending this entire time trying to make my numbers uh, match up. In the back of my <laughs> I was told there would be no math. And, uh, yeah, not yeah. a mathematician, Justin Taylor. Uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to quantify, but um, if I break out theology and biblical studies, like uh, maybe theology, 20%, biblical studies, including like commentaries, that sort of thing, maybe 25% history and culture together, maybe 30 kind of practical Christian living, uh, 15%, maybe uh, fiction, 10%, although almost all of that now by audio. Yeah. So last question as we think about books. Uh, I got a 
comment from one of our many myriad of listeners this week <laughs> that said it was good to hear you talk about books. I'd love to hear you in subsequent episodes. Talk not about just what you're reading, but give us some habits of how you retain what you read, how you learn from what you read, how you prepare and research. So there's lots of things there, and we'll get to that in another podcast. But this question I thought was good and is maybe worth ending on. We've circled around it. But how do you choose what to read? And I part of, I hope, these last few minutes of conversation will, as you said, Colin, help set people free from right. false guilt. Uh, I read sometimes you know, at the end of the year what Trevin Wax has read, and I think, oh, man, I'm not, I'm not reading any of that, you know. Al Mohler stuff is always books where people are killing people. You know, there's usually generals and usually Churchill's involved somewhere. Churchill's involved. And I think, <laughs> oh, I don't know anything about military history compared to that. And Russ Moore has a, a very different set of eclectic sort of Jimmy Buffett bios. And which I actually, that probably would be interesting. I went to a Jimmy Buffett concert once. That's from how long ago? Uh, I was in high school. Oh, okay. So a long time. Yeah, so a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, so how do we choose what we read? Uh, I've told other people before uh, to follow your nose and what you're yeah. into. And I know earlier on, I thought I need to be well-rounded. And so I, you know, I need to make a list of the great books that I have to get through. And that may work for some people. It just didn't work for me to say, I'm, I'm always going to be reading now, maybe you're more disciplined in it, Colin, you know, a fiction book and this kind of book. And I just realized there's seasons and they have to do with current events and they have to do with things that I'm interested in. And so I, I'm reading three or four books on slavery right now. Maybe we'll talk about them sometime. And that's just, you know, something set off. Oh, I got some questions. I want to learn more. And so I'm reading some of those books where if you had told me to read them three years ago, it might have said, eh, I don't really want to read that. You know, I, I, Love reading through systematic theology. Partly, I'm, I'm teaching it now, but I I have so many more questions. I more answers, but I have more questions than I did ten years ago. I know how much more intricate these debates are, and so I can learn things that I didn't even know that I needed to learn. Uh, I've been teaching a class in the Enlightenment, and so I've been reading a lot of philosophy and thinking, oh, th th there's actually interesting things to learn from Thomas Reed and Kant and whoever else. So you, I think you need to follow your nose. And the, the most important thing is you're, you're reading and understand that not everyone has the sort of jobs that we do that lend themselves to reading right. and uh, not to feel, you know, beating yourself up if you didn't reach the, you know, D.A. Carson, I don't even want to say it, 500 books. I don't know how many ridiculous number of books he that he's, he, that he's written. That he reads in a year. Oh, I mean, okay. it's like hundreds of of books. But you remember George W. Bush? Didn't he, you know, have a contest with whoever about how many books? And he was reading close to a hundred books. Rove. Yeah, with Carl Rove. I mean, that's amazing. So I do think yeah. if the president could read some books, now he didn't have eight kids. So come on. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's pretty eclectic. What I what I, I may be interested in at the moment, but I think there's something to just reading and continuing to learn. How do you guys go about deciding what to read? I'll, I'll go first because Colin will have a much more thoughtful and careful answer, so we'll let him end on a high note. But uh, yeah, I would echo what you said, Kevin. I think 
there's always a temptation, especially if we go kind of through the academic route, to feel perpetually like you're second class or you don't read as much as somebody else or you're not as smart as somebody else or you don't have any notches on your literary belt as somebody else. And uh, just to free yourself from that, that you don't have to read what everybody else reads. And it is kind of miserable, I think, to read something just because you feel like you have to read it and not because you um, want to read it. That's Uh, why you have high school. Exactly. (laughs) And I I know people disagree with me on this. I uh, don't think you need to finish books. And I think you can benefit from books even if you've read three chapters out of it and jump off if you want to go into something else. not Wendell Berry's Jaber Crow one chapter in. That doesn't do you any good. Oh, oh, thanks. Yeah, I'll come back to that. <laughs> Something else just to free up listeners who might be listening in, um, both of you out there. Uh, <laughs> even if you read 500 books a year and you live 90 years, you have still read only a yeah. minuscule amount of books yeah. out there. Uh, so just to free yourself up, like even if you're the best read person in the world, you're reading a very, very small percent of even uh, just a typical public library. Um, and then final comment is that like Kevin, I'd like to read books in batches. So, uh, or at least to buy them in batches. <laughs> if I pick up a book on slavery, I want to find the, the three best, four best books on slavery or um, on Abraham Lincoln or on something happening, happening culturally uh, so that I don't just get one perspective. And I think it kind of enriches all of the books when you, look at more than one at once on the same topic. That's helpful, Justin. I would say just overall, um, just make sure you are reading. Um, that's, that's why I do the different genres, not necessarily to push myself, but because I want to make sure I'm just always in the mood to read something and my moods change. So part of it's just, just make sure you are reading and pick up what strikes your fancy at that moment. Uh, a lot of my choices come from recommendations. I think it's important, though, to find recommendations that come from peers, i.e. people who are on your level. It wouldn't do you any good if you were 18 years old and had never read much fiction at all and you're listening to me talk through this and say, oh, okay, so I'm just going to start jumping in on that stuff. That wouldn't make any sense. Uh, it wouldn't be a wise decision there. So find people who are generally on your level to be able to help introduce you to things and be able to understand how to make those choices. And then do find somebody who is a step ahead of you who can tell you, no, don't, don't spend your time on that, but do spend your time on this over here. That's one thing I would recommend. And then also, um, you know, it, it was a life changing experience for me to study Russian literature in college. If I had set out to do that on my own, I would have failed. So if you want to jump in on Brothers Karamazov, you want to jump in on Dostoevsky's canon, go for it. But don't be afraid to ask for help, whether it be watching lectures or listening to, to them or you know buying a, an introductory copy or something like that. Or just telling yourself, I'm going to have to ramp up to that and not just jump in on that. I think the important importance is to see reading as a genuine delight and also as a chance for God to edify you um, and to be able to sanctify you and not as some kind of badge of declaring your righteousness before men. Yeah. Uh, so I'd be aware of that, especially, um, yeah, especially if you're younger and you're listening on this podcast, I'd be it, very it, careful it, about that. It's really wise. And, and it's, 
it can seem like a silly thing, but we've all, we've all been around and we've been those sort of people. I'm sure I know I have You hear people talking about books. I mean, I want to jump in and say something about, uh, Dostoevsky. I, I maybe had to read something in high school. I don't remember. So I'm, I'm not reading that. And I have, you, you all know this and Justin better than both of us, you know, Piper has been a real example of humility in this area because he's admitted all sorts of times publicly he's not a fast reader. And I've been in lots of settings with, you know, lots of people that uh, you all would know. And Piper never puts on airs that he's read all these books. And yet you can reliably (laughs) assume that if he has read something, you know, he's read it as carefully as anyone. And so there's different ways to read. That's part of what I've had to learn too is Justin's right. Sometimes you you read three chapters and you've learned something from it and you know where the book is. And maybe you go back and you know where to find something in the other chapters. And then sometimes you pour through a book word for word, line by line. And other times you say, I'm going to give this an hour to try to get some big ideas. And, uh, it doesn't do us a lot of good to just be able to tell people we've read all these books that we have sitting on our shelves. If we haven't been shaped by them, if we haven't been changed by them, if we haven't been challenged by the really good ones. And so there are lots of good examples of not only reading widely, but reading deeply and using it as an opportunity to give us wisdom and edification, not to puff up. Thank you men for being here. I've so many other things I wanted to get to, you know, this podcast (laughs) is not sponsored by anyone yet. If it were, it would be by the pizza ranch. (laughs) So if you are near, uh, in my gluten days, there were many, many joyous occasions better than books is cactus bread. So encourage all of our listeners to go Sit at a buffet with lots of people right now. Yeah, that's right. No. Yeah, that's right. Go find some books by yourself under the sneeze guard and enjoy up, some cactus uh, bread. Go to everybody's favorite pizza joint because they serve fried chicken. <laughs> that's, I well, mean. It, it is. If you can do both. <laughs> and that cactus bread is, is nigh unto Lembus bread. Now, I know you didn't read Tolkien, so that, that's, oh, that's, no. that's escaping you. no idea what that means. And I have sent both Kevin and Colin pictures to prove that in Minnesota there is a pizza ranch with a bowling alley inside. <laughs> <laughs> that's just known as a dream come true. We, 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 we have no sponsor. Um, we're just is it Kirk to Cousins on... doing advertisements for Pizza Ranch? Of course. Who would be better than Kirk Cousins? Who would be Shout better? out to our friend, friend of the show, Kirk Cousins. Oh, um, he's a, he's a long time listener. <laughs> friend sure. of the show. Um, but um, I, we, we don't have actual sponsors, but I do want to honor a good, good, good friend of ours, a real friend of ours. Um, and that is, a a very close friend of mine just texted me and said the another, he said, this has to win a book award this year. Dane Ortland's gentle and lowly uh, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers published by our good friends at Crossway. Are Thank you sending you, me a copy, Justin? <laughs> they didn't send you a copy no. yet. I can't remember. Mm, I guess I'm the special one. Uh, oh, you can't remember. Know. You get too many of them. 
Oh, it's true. Uh, 50% pretty important people over here, Calvin. <laughs> uh, no, all right. Who, who enjoy the pizza ranch. <laughs> yes. Okay. Well, thank you all, and uh, hope to talk to you again next week. Bye.